Well, what a wondrous mystery. And uh, to think that we, by the grace of God, have been caught up in that mystery. We're a part of that mystery. Uh, by no act of our own, um, nothing that we've done or could have ever done or could ever do, right? But the Lord in his grace and mercy has caught us up in this great mysterious plan of salvation. Well, I appreciate the uh, encouraging um, um, comments last Sunday after uh, the message. We spoke on a subject that I think is very applicable to all of us, the crook in our lot. We all have crooked, bent, broken things in our lives that uh, are ordained by the Lord, and they, um, God uses them to perfect us and to make us more like Him and and it seemed to strike a chord in, in a lot of people's hearts last week. And uh, I mentioned to somebody that's a message that we all need to hear uh, on a regular basis because we so often forget. And so, um, in fact, I thought to myself afterwards, I thought, I need mean, to remember that sermon. And if I'm ever invited to preach somewhere else, you know, at, a, on a, at another church on occasion, that that's one I need to remember to maybe preach again. Uh, I just think that would be a huge encouragement and comfort to others as it was for us last week. And I want to continue uh, in that vein this morning. And, and really, hopefully this morning's message will complement last Sunday morning's message and will really build on uh, what we talked about last week and uh, hopefully provide even greater encouragement uh, to your soul than, than last week's message. But um, I want you to take your Bibles and to turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 this morning, and we're going to be looking at that classic account, probably one of the most memorable miracles that Jesus ever performed, and that is the stilling of the storm. It's found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but I've chosen Luke's account of this event for our study today. Luke chapter 8, and let's just read verses 22 through 25. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Now, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Father, we... All have heard this text many times before, and it would be very easy just to assume that we understand this story and why it's in the Bible, but I pray that this morning that your spirit would move amongst us, Lord, in, in, in illuminating our minds to see things maybe we've never seen before from this text, things that we can apply, Lord, to our lives that can help us whenever we're faced with stormy trials, which we know are inevitable, that it's only a matter of time before we 
face difficulties in our lives. And so I pray that we would draw great comfort and great hope this morning from your word and that you would give us truth to take with us, Lord, as we head out into the world for another week, that no matter what you've ordained for us to face, that we would face it in obedience, Lord, to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've entitled today's message, Weatherproof Faith. Now, we understand that term weatherproof. We, we use it all the time. It, it means something is able to withstand exposure to the harsh elements of nature without being damaged. It can, it's something that can stand up to the blowing wind and the pounding rain and the freezing snow and ice and the blistering sun. That's what we understand to be weatherproof. Now, let's apply that concept to our faith as Christians. All of us at times are exposed to some of the harsh elements of life, a debilitating accident, the frightening discovery of a malignant tumor tumor somewhere in your body, the the sudden death of a loved one, the the grief that's involved in in dealing with a, a wayward child or the the pain and the disappointment of a failed marriage that ends in divorce, an unexpected layoff, financial crisis, the hurt of a broken friendship. All these trying situations and circumstances are like like storms that, that blow and beat against our lives. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, is our faith strong enough to withstand the storms of life without being damaged? In other words, do these things take a toll on our faith? Or is our faith tough enough to endure and bear up under these harsh conditions and circumstances that we face in life and, and in fact, even get stronger, even become more weatherproof? The question I want to ask you this morning is, do you have weatherproof faith? And here in this this classic story of Jesus calming the storm, I want you to see three principles this morning that are going to help help you develop weatherproof faith. In In order to weather the storms of life, we need to understand and apply these principles in this passage to our lives. Let's look at these principles. Number one. We need to realize that storms are a normal, necessary part of our lives. We need to realize that storms are a normal, necessary part of our lives. Notice how this text begins. Now, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake, and so they launched out. Luke doesn't specify the exact time of this boat trip, but Matthew and Mark tell us it happened in the evening after a long, tiring day of ministry. And so Jesus wanted a break from the demands of teaching and and healing and and, and feeding people, and and so he said, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Probably looking for a little, uh, some, some downtime, just a little retreat away from all the commotion and all the crowds and the hustle and bustle, and they, he wanted to go on the other side, the, the less populated side of the Sea of Galilee. Notice verse 23, but as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. 
Jesus was so exhausted from, from, from ministering to, to, the, to the masses that he, he crashed in the back of the boat, and, and Mark tells us he, he fell asleep on a cushion that was back there. By the way, this is proof of Christ's genuine humanity, that he was not just fully God, he was also fully man. And the fact that he got tired and had to sleep, just like you and me, shows us that he was really human. It's what the theologians call the hypostatic union, that, 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 that Jesus was 100% God, but he was also 100% human. You're like, that's impossible. That makes absolutely no sense. You're exactly right. It's a mystery. It's part of this wondrous mystery that we were singing about earlier. It's one of the mysteries of the Godhead. It's one of the mysteries of, of the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus was fast asleep in the back of the boat, and notice what it goes on to say in verse 23, but as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. Now, the Sea of Galilee, if you've never been there, is, is really more like a big lake. That's what they call it. They call it a sea, even though it's really um, smaller, if you can believe it or not, than Lake Conroe. It's about 13 miles long, about 8 miles wide. It's approximately 700 feet below sea level, which makes it very interesting uh, how the climate affects the lake. It's surrounded by these high hills that are carved with these deep ravines that, that act like funnels. And the winds uh, come off the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea and they, they go across the plains and they come up over those hills and they just come rushing down through those ravines with great velocity. And the lake is famous for sudden storms that can strike quickly and unexpectedly. One of the first things I, I remember of uh, my first time in Israel was, was going out on the Sea of Galilee and, and noticing all the windsurfers. And it's, a, it's really a prime spot on the planet for windsurfing. Uh, and it was amazing to watch how fast these windsurfers could go on the Sea of Galilee because of just the wind dynamic. In fact, the last time I taught this passage, I was actually in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, halfway through the message, water was splashing over the, the deck, uh, onto the deck, onto all the people. And uh, it was interesting because when we went out, it was just very calm, very relaxing. We were enjoying our time out there. And just in a matter of an hour or so, uh, the, the entire dynamic of that sea had changed. It was all choppy. And in fact, the, the, the boat driver had to bring us in a little prematurely because it was getting so rough. Well, I'm... Sure, it wasn't as rough as it was that day as they were sailing along. That word, Matthew calls it literally a great storm, literally a shaking. It was so violent that Mark tells us that the waves were breaking over the boat and the boat was in the process of filling up with water. It was swamped, it says. And notice it says that they were in danger. This was a very dangerous situation. It appeared that the boat was going to sink and the disciples were scared that they were going to drown. Which I think is interesting because some of the disciples that were on that boat were experienced fishermen. I mean, they were veteran sailors, if you will. 
They probably knew the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hand. They had, they had most likely experienced many storms during their, their, their many years of, of fishing, growing up fishing there in the family business on the Sea of Galilee. And, and so the fact that they were scared out of their wits must have meant that this was the big one. They had never seen anything like this before. The question we should ask ourselves is, what were these disciples doing at that point when that storm hit? What were they doing? They were doing exactly what Jesus had told them to do. What did he tell them to do? To go over to the other side of the lake. They were being obedient to his command. They had gotten in the boat, and they were heading over to the other side. And they were hit with this tremendous storm. And I think this is important for us to know because I think we oftentimes wrongly assume that the only time we face trials or storms in our lives is when we're disobedient and God has to punish us. We, we, we typically assume that when something bad hits us, you know, some storm blows into our lives, we're thinking, oh no, I'm Jonah. I must have done something wrong. But what did I do, God? And now you're, you're punishing me, you're, you're judging me. Well, that may be the case. There is times when the Lord disciplines us. If you're a true child of the Lord and you sin, and sometimes he does discipline us. There's consequences, right, to our sin. But what about men like Job or Joseph in Genesis or the Apostle Paul? All of these men were godly. They were faithful. They were obedient. And they lived lives of integrity. In fact, God even said there was, there was no one more godly than Job on the entire planet. And yet, he, along with these other men, faced more horrendous storms than most of us will ever face in our lives. And so that should encourage us that, that just because we live an obedient life, it doesn't mean we'll never face difficulties in our lives. We're not immune to trials. On the contrary, it's likely that we'll experience more difficulties because that's how God causes us to grow and mature as a Christian. And the irony of this is, is that these awful storms that threaten to shipwreck our faith are designed by God to strengthen our faith. Trials test and, and toughen up our faith so we're able to endure even greater storms in the future. Turn over to James chapter 1. You're familiar with, with what James says here, I'm sure. James chapter 1, probably the greatest uh, passage about trials in the whole, whole Bible. James chapter 1 verse 2, James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. In other words, submit to the trial so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is always at work filling up where we're lacking in our faith, filling up, uh, strengthening us, and shoring up the weak parts of our faith that we might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And then just the next book over in 1 Peter... Just turn to the right a few pages, you'll find Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter had a similar uh, 
similar advice in his letter uh, about how to deal with trials. James says, consider it all joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And, and here Peter in chapter 1 verse 6 says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then notice chapter 4, he continues this theme of trials in chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, 12. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Why are you shocked? Why, why do you act so shocked that you're having to deal with these trials and this persecution? It's, it's come upon you for your what? For your testing, as though, as though some strange thing were happening. Listen, no temptation, no trial has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Why are you so surprised? But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Listen, consider it an honor to suffer alongside Christ, to share in his sufferings. That's what Paul longed for, Philippians chapter 3. I, I count all things as loss of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ and sharing in his suffering. And so Jesus' question here is very simple in verse 25, just jumping ahead here. He said to them, where is your what? Faith. See, this, all, this whole thing is about their faith. And I think this question was intended to expose their lack of faith for the purpose of building up their faith. And oftentimes that's why God brings storms into our lives, to expose our lack of faith. For what purpose? To build up our faith, to strengthen our faith. Kent Hughes, one of my favorite commentators, titled this chapter um, in his commentary when he uh, explains this particular text, he calls it a, a divine storm, a divine storm. In other words, God made it happen. And he, he said this, quote, though the disciples had no way to know, to know it during those terrible moments, that miserable storm was a divinely appointed vehicle to teach them about God and his power in their lives. This choreography of heaven was essential for their spiritual development. When's the last time you thought about that? Uh, you likened your trials to a choreography of heaven. That, that, that God is orchestrating. He's, he's the choreographer. And he's, he's designed all this for your spiritual development. Hughes goes on. He says, this is a vital principle of spiritual life. Without difficulties, without trial, without stresses, and even failures, we would never grow to be what we should become. Storms are part of the process of spiritual growth. End quote. And so whenever we're in the midst of a raging storm, we need to realize that even though we may not understand why we're going through this particular situation, we can be confident that God has sovereignly ordained that trial to teach us something that we would never learn any other way. 
And so this is the first principle here that we need to understand and apply that storms are a normal, necessary part of our lives. The second principle is we need to rely on the presence and the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. We need to rely on the presence and power of Jesus Christ in our lives. So if we know that trials and storms are inevitable, well, what do we need to do to get ready? How are we going to endure those things? Well, you need to rely on the presence and power of Jesus Christ in your life in the midst of your trial, in the midst of the storm. Notice verse 24 It says, the gale of wind descended on the lake. They began to be swamped and to be in danger. And they came to Jesus and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And the sense I get is after, every, after trying everything else, they woke Jesus up. They had done everything they could to keep the boat on course, to keep it filling up with water, but the faster they bailed the water out, the, the faster it came back in, and all their attempts to save themselves were futile. They were at their wit's end, and so their last resort was to wake up Jesus. And, and I, we need to picture this. Try to get beyond the black and white of the, the page in front of you and just picture this in your mind's eye. you got this boat in the middle of the raging storm and you got the wind howling and the boat's bobbing up and down and the waves are crashing over the boat and water splashing everywhere and the disciples are screaming commands to one another and, and, and Jesus is in the back of the boat sleeping through the whole thing. He's just like sleeping like a baby. My kids are like that. There'll be some horrendous uh, thunder and lightning storm that just shocks Kelly out of bed in the middle of the night, and, and, and we'll wake up the next morning, and, and, and we'll be at breakfast and say, hey, did you guys hear that storm last night? Like, no, what, what storm? Well, what happened? Somebody told Kelly that, that uh, when the kids were little, that if you go in their room and make a bunch of noise right after they go to bed, those, those be really sound sleepers. And, and so she would, I'd catch her putting the kids down and like 10 minutes after she put the kid in the crib, she, she would be in there with a vacuum cleaner, <laughs> vacuuming the rug in the kids' rooms. And, and guess what? I mean, the world could end and our kids would sleep through it. Um, but that's, gee, he was sleeping like a baby. And the only thing that woke him up were the frantic screams of the frightened disciples. They probably came over and shook him and said, Jesus, we're perishing. Matthew says that they cried out, save us, Lord. Mark says, one of them said, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? You're like, see, I knew that there was contradiction in the Bible. That's a discrepancy in Scripture. You just admitted it. Well, I think the natural explanation is that different disciples were yelling different things. I mean, you got a bunch of guys in a boat that are scared that they're going to die, and they're all yelling out, we're perishing, save us, Lord. Don't you care that we're going to die? I think it's interesting that quote from Mark, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Isn't that how it 
typically goes when we're in a trial, that we start getting mad at God and taking it out on him as if it's his fault and doesn't he care? And, and so the disciples accused Jesus of being aloof and uncaring about this, the serious nature of the problem that they were in. Don't, don't you care? Don't you even care? And the fact that he slept through all the commotion made it appear that he was oblivious to what was going on. And I think it's true for us that sometimes when we're in the middle of a, of a stormy situation, it feels like God's oblivious to us, does it not? It seems like he's sleeping on the job. He's not responding to us the way we want him to. He's not doing what we've asked him to do. And we, we may wonder, does he know? Does he care? Is he even there? And that's when we find comfort from the psalmist who expressed, I think, all of our hearts when we feel this way at some point in our lives. You could go through countless psalms and, and, and hear him crying out, the psalmist crying out, where are you, God? How, how long will you hide your face from me? Hey, have you forgotten me? Don't, don't you realize what I'm going through down here? You're not alone. You've thought those thoughts. You maybe even have voiced those, expressed those, those statements. But at the same time, the psalmist is quick to remind us that we have a God who neither slumbers or sleeps. Amen? Psalm 121, verse 4. The Lord never slumbers. He never sleeps. God is always awake, watching over us. And what's more, he's always walking with us wherever we go and whatever we go through. Psalm 23, 4, David writes, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are what? With me. How about Isaiah 43? Isaiah 43, you might want to turn back to this passage. It's, it's one that you should underline or highlight or dog-ear the page in your Bible. This is a passage that, that I run to often. In fact, this is the passage probably survey says that I read the most um, when I go on a hospital visit to visit someone in the hospital when they're about ready to get a, a, have surgery done or they're, they're recovering or they've just been diagnosed with some some scary disease, and this is, the, this is the, the passage that my mind goes to often, Isaiah chapter 50, or excuse me, 43, verses 1 through 4, Isaiah writes, but now, thus says the Lord your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, 
nor will the flame burn you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you. I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Verse 5, do not fear, for I am with you. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that a comfort? And so that applies to this situation back in Luke chapter 8. Jesus hadn't gone anywhere. Sure, he may have been asleep in his humanness, but in his divinity, he knew everything that was going on. And he was there for them when they needed him. And so they came to Jesus, verse 24, and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. Mark tells us what Jesus actually said. He said, hush. Be still. And guess what? It did. Immediately, everything became perfectly calm. Even the waves, the the surface of the water instantly became like glass. Listen, that does not happen. I don't care how many times you watch the Weather Channel, okay? They're not going to show that phenomenon. Because it's, it's, it's impossible, humanly impossible, right? When you've got a, 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 a Lake Conroe is a great example. You've got that thing stirred up, right, like a washing machine, and, and, and it takes a while, right? Even when the wind stops, it's just going to take a while for those waves to dissipate and for that thing to become. Not, you, know, you can't go out there and just try it next time. You're on your boat. Hush, be still. See what happens. It ain't happening, I'm telling you. This was a miracle that was done by the power of Jesus Christ. That term rebuked there, it says he rebuked the wind and the surging waves. That is the same word used to describe how Jesus spoke to disease and demons. He would rebuke the disease. He would rebuke the demon. And so some commentators suggest that this this is an indication that the storm here was was potentially demonically influenced. We know from the book of Job that that God gave Satan limited control over the elements. He was able to wipe out all of Job's livestock. There was a a wind, whether it was a tornado or a hurricane or something came and and knocked down the house where all of his kids were were, were having a, a celebration. They all died. And so this may have been one of Satan's many attempts to to thwart the plan of God by drowning Jesus so he wouldn't be able to die on the cross and break the powerful grip that that, that sin and Satan had on the world. It's speculation. And whether the storm was caused by Satan or, or not, nothing could keep Jesus from fulfilling his purpose and completing his task. And I think the root of the disciples' fear may have been not so much the immediate danger, but 
maybe it was if they all drowned, then all their hopes and dreams and plans that were wrapped up in this guy named Jesus would be drowned too. And so in their minds, the ship was going down in more ways than one. Literally, the ship was going down, but so was their mission. And what they didn't realize is that as long as Jesus was on board that ship, that ship could not go down. In fact, the safest place in the entire universe at that moment was on board that ship. I mean, if you could choose to be anywhere, like, I wouldn't want to be on that ship. Well, guess what? If Jesus is on that ship, that's the best place to be. Even though you may be freaking out, that's the safest place to be. Notice after rebuking the wind and the waves, Jesus rebuked who? He rebuked his disciples for their lack of faith. He said, where's your faith? We know the essence of faith is believing what God has said, taking God at his word. If God says something, he's going to do it. My favorite definition of faith I ever heard is Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China, said this, faith is trusting in the faithfulness of God. If he said it, he's going to do it. What did Jesus say to them? What, what, do you, what, what, he had, what had he said to them in verse 23? He said to them, let's go over to the other side of the lake. He didn't say, hey, let's go to the bottom of the lake. He said, let's go to the other side of the lake. Guess what? God always keeps his word. Look at verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Guess what? They made it to the other side. And I think we all tend to act like the disciples when, when we're hit by an unexpected storm in our lives. We begin to worry. We get, we get stressed out. We run around trying to, to, to figure it out and, and fix it ourselves. And when nothing seems to work and things only get worse, we adopt this ship is going down. The ship is going down mentality. The, the, our marriage is going down. Our family is going down. My, my, our finances are, my health is, is the ship is going down. We have this negative, pessimistic, the, the ship is going down. And, and that's usually when we finally call out to Jesus as a last resort, after we've tried everything. For example, when you find yourself in a situation that you don't know what to do. Is your first instinct to pick up the phone and call somebody or set up a meeting with someone and, and, and say, hey, I, I need some advice, I need some counsel, I don't, I don't know what to do? Or is your first instinct to spend some time with Jesus, to get on your knees or get in his word? I think we all tend to think on a horizontal level and, and, and unfortunately Jesus is sometimes our last resort instead of our first resort. Our first reaction should be to hit our knees, to cry out to Jesus. And I say that knowing that some of you are going through maybe some of the most challenging situations that you've ever experienced in your life. You're doing it, you're going through it right now, and it feels like the ship's going down. 
You feel like it this morning. You feel like you came here this morning and, and you're treading water. <laughs> you're, this is about all that, that, that's left, right? You're going down. And I want to ask you the same question that Jesus asked his disciples. Where's your faith? Where's your faith? Where's your faith? Where's your faith? I want to encourage you to hang in there. You're going to make it. As long as Jesus is on board your life and he's the captain of your ship. There's an old commentator that I grew to love when I studied the book of Luke years ago for the first time. And his name was, his name, I can't even pronounce it, Norval Gelenheis. <laughs> but listen to what he said. He says, just as it was impossible for that ship with the Redeemer of the world on board to flounder, no matter how many storms broke over it, so it is with the vessel of every believer's life. It cannot perish, for Jesus, the omnipotent pilot, is on board. Amen? So you can say, like Stephen Curtis Chapman says in that song, bring it on. Bring it on. If this is going to help me grow, if this is going to strengthen my faith, then bring it on. Bring it on. And so when you're in the middle of a storm, instead of giving up hope, look to your divine captain, Jesus Christ, and rely fully on his presence in your life. He's there, even though it might not feel like it. He's there. And rely on his power to bring you to the other side. You say, okay, how does that happen practically? What does that look like to fully rely on the presence and the power of Jesus Christ in my life? Well, what is this called? The word of Christ. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And so you, what does it look like practically to rely on Christ, his presence and his power? It's somehow connected to this right here. If this is his word, right, you need to spend time in his word, reading his word, meditating on his word, hearing his word preached. We also know that Christ is our great high priest. He's our intercessor. He intercedes for us uh, at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so we need to pray. It's not enough just to read and meditate upon the scriptures. We need to communicate with Christ. He speaks to us through the word and we speak to him through prayer. And we need to, to intercede to our intercessor, Jesus Christ. We need to pray to him. And thirdly, not only do we need to be in the word of Christ, we need to pray to Christ, our intercessor, what is this thing called right here that, that we have going here? Well, what is this called? The church or the body of who? Christ. What, what does it look like to rely on the presence and the power of Christ? Guess what? Christ's presence is right here. Whenever the body gathers, right, Christ is here with us. 
And so to, you, you want to rely on the power of Christ. You need to stay connected to his body, stay connected to the church. Why? Because this is where you get encouraged. This is where you get uh, uh, equipped. This is where you get uh, comforted and where you ha- get held accountable and where you find encouragement. And so again, practically, what does that look like to rely on the presence and power of Christ in your life? Be in his word, be faithful to pray, and stay connected to the body, the body of Christ, the church. And remember this, no matter how scary things get in the midst of your trial, keep in mind that you are in the safest place you could possibly be on the planet. I say that because some of you are like, man, I want out of this trial right now. I want off the boat. I want out of this storm. I want the sea to be calmed now. Well, I can appreciate that. We all would want that. Who wouldn't want that? But just remember, while the wind is whipping and the water's splashing, you are in the safest place you could possibly be with Jesus in the midst of that storm. The third principle is you need to remember that God is in control of everything in your life. You need to remember that God is in control of everything in your life. And here is really where last week's, this this message parallels was last week's message about God's sovereignty over all of life, the crooks in our lot, the imperfections in our lives, the things that we wish were different, that we could change, but we can't. Right? It also applies to the trials that come into our lives, the, the storms that we face. We need to remember that God is in control of everything in our lives. Notice, back in verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? And I'm wondering if they actually heard him say that. <laughs> Based on what? Luke records here, it says they were fearful and amazed and frankly, asking that question, where's your faith? That's not something that would amaze me or, or scare me. It was everything else that just happened. They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this? That he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. A moment ago, this guy was sleeping just like any one of us would do in the back of the boat. And then he gets up and does something only God can do. And that's control the weather. These guys knew the Old Testament. Psalm 89, verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. That's something only God can do. And so they ask themselves the question. They ask each other, who then is this? Who is this guy? I mean, at this point, they had already seen him heal lame people. He, he, they saw him give sight to the blind, restore someone's sight. They even saw him bring a dead guy back to life. So they had seen a lot of powerful things 
up to this point. But this was the greatest demonstration of raw power that they had ever witnessed. The elements of nature that had gone wildly out of control recognized the voice of Jesus. And when he spoke to them, they immediately obeyed him like he was their master. And it suddenly dawned on them that Jesus was not this great teacher, this faith healer, this holy prophet or, or, or zealous revolutionary. Jesus is God. And if you slow down the, the disciples' thought process, it just kind of goes like this. It's pretty logical. Jesus just controlled the winds and the waves. And if he controlled the winds and the waves, he must have created the winds and the waves. And if he created the winds and the waves, then he must be God. And if he is God, that means God is in the boat right now. Ah! Right? I mean, this was the... the when they realized who Jesus was, that's, what, that's when they really got scared. This was even scarier than, than, than the storm outside the boat was to have God in the boat. One of the things I love about this passage is it's... It's a beautiful blend. It, blends, it beautifully blends together Christ's humanity and Christ's deity. Do you see that? Just a few verses earlier, he's sleeping. He's wiped out. He's, he's plumb tuckered out from, from all of what he was doing. I mean, he's, as a human, he was tired. He, he needed to go to sleep, recharge his batteries, if you will, humanly speaking. But here we see his deity and, and the fact that he had the power to control the weather is undeniable proof of Christ's deity. He truly is who the Bible says he is. Jesus is creator God. John 1, 3, we've been studying this in the Gospel of John. All things came into being through Christ and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 1.16, we studied this several years ago in our study of Colossians. Colossians 1.16, for in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, through whom also God made the world, talking about Christ that God made the world through Christ, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. And we see, see an example of that in this text. We see the word of his power, his powerful word. And so Jesus Christ is the creator and the controller of everything. And so whenever we're faced with a stormy situation, we need to always keep in mind that our all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-good, all-loving God has everything under control. He has everything under control. Even when it feels like everything's out of control. You ever feel that way? This is, this, is, this is messed up, man. This is crazy. This is, this is out of control. Well, from a human perspective, it, it may be, but not from God's perspective. And so in order for us to have weatherproof faith, 
We must, number one, realize that storms are a normal and necessary part of our lives. Number two, we must rely on the presence and power of Jesus Christ in our lives. And number three, we need to remember that God is in control of everything in our lives. Now, perhaps, as I suggested, that a storm is raging in your life right now. You're being brutally buffeted by by some trial, and you're you're wondering if you're going to make it. You might feel like you're drowning in the depths of despair even this morning. You're literally at your wit's end. You do not know what to do. Which, by the way, I think that's why James 1.5 is so important. Sometimes we take that out of context. It says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously without finding fault. Well, guess what? That comes right within the context of trials. And typically, that's what you need more than anything else in the midst of a trial is wisdom. Where I don't know what to do. I don't know what decision to make. I don't know where to turn. I don't know what we're going to do in this situation. You need wisdom. And that's why he says, hey, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask of God. And see, when you come to the end of yourself and you don't know what to do, that's, the, that's a great place to be because then the only thing left is God. See, at the end of you is where God begins, right? And so you need to cry out to him and he will rescue you. He'll calm your troubled, storm-tossed soul just like he did the Sea of Galilee. Typically, as we study Scripture, we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament to find illustrations and examples of Christ and the cross and salvation in Jesus Well, this morning, I want to pull a reverse, and I want to go back to the Old Testament as we close to find an example, an illustration of salvation. And and just turn back to Psalm, the book of Psalms, Psalms 107, and this is where we'll end this morning. Because I think here in Psalm 107, we have not just one, but four brilliant illustrations of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And this was obviously written to the Jews, and it was uh, written to celebrate their deliverance from exile. They had been taken out of their homeland and brought to Babylon and were slaves in a foreign land, and this psalm was written to celebrate their homecoming as they were coming back into Jerusalem and coming back into the temple to worship the Lord. This psalm was written for them to sing. And uh, there's four, really, that the heart of this psalm, Psalm 107, is entitled in my Bible, The Lord Delivers Men from Manifold Troubles. At the heart of this psalm, there's four pictures, if you will, or illustrations of how God rescues us. The first one is a picture of God rescuing someone who's wandering in the wilderness, lost out in the middle of a desert, verses 4 through 9. And then in verses 10 through 
16, you have an illustration of someone who's locked in prison in a deep, dark prison cell and how God rescues them from that situation. And then in verses 17 to 22, there's an example of someone who's sick, just deathly sick on their deathbed and how God rescues them and delivers them. Again, all pictures of God's redeeming and rescuing the the nation of Israel out of exile in Babylon, which ultimately is a picture of God exiling us from sin and death and hell and redeeming us and, 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 and giving us life in Christ. But then I love this last illustration that's so appropriate in the light of our text in in Luke. Psalm 107, verse 23, those who go down to the sea in ships. And so now the picture is somebody who's lost at sea in the middle of a storm. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep, for he spoke and raised up a stormy wind. Who spoke? God spoke. This was a sovereign storm. He spoke and raised up this stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens and they went down to the depths. You can just see the the ship going up and down, up and down. And and it says that their soul melted away in their misery. They, 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 They had lost hope. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and they were at their wit's end. They didn't know what to do. They they thought they were goners. Then, verse 28, they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. That's a great image, isn't it? And I think it applies to both believers and unbelievers, Christians and non-Christians. God allows believers to go through storms to build up and strengthen our faith. But he also allows unbelievers to go through storms to stir up and produce faith in their life. And it may be that God has sovereignly stirred up the sea in your life. And, and it's, it's rocky right now. And, and, and you can relate to that picture in Psalm 107. And guess what? God's right in the midst of that whole thing. And he wants to use that difficult trial to convict you as an unbeliever of your sinfulness and your helplessness to deal with all of life's problems on your own and to convict you that you need to place your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And God often uses crises to bring people to Christ, to bring bring people to, to salvation. And so you may be here this morning and you know you're not a Christian. You know you, you're just kind of here and, and, and taking all this in, but you don't truly know Jesus Christ. You need the presence and the power of Christ in your life. And so I want to encourage you this morning to invite Christ aboard, if you will, to ask him to be the captain of your soul, the Lord of your life. You say, how do I do that? Well, it's really simple. You admit the fact that you're a sinner who deserves to die and go to hell. 
and that you've made a mess of your life, trying to do it your way, in your wisdom, your strength, but that you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, and it's through his death on the cross that you can be made right with God. And it's the only way that you may be made right with God. Not your work, it's his work for you that rescues you from death and hell. And then you commit the rest of your life to follow and obey Jesus as your Lord, as your master, as your commander-in-chief, as the captain of your life. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this simple story that all of us have heard many times, but I pray that we would leave here um, this morning just crying out to Jesus because we know ultimately he's the only one that can rescue us and deliver us from sin and death and hell, but also he's the only one that can rescue us from the trials of life and the difficulties that we all face from time to time. And I pray that this would just be a sweet reminder to all of us of how desperately we need Jesus. And Father, that we would, we would run to Jesus, we would cling to Jesus this week through spending time in his word, by spending time talking to him as he's seated at the right hand of your throne in heaven interceding for us, and that we would maybe spend some extra time with some other members of the body of Christ who might encourage us, who might counsel us, who might even correct us, help us to think right about whatever we're going through, and that we would receive some encouragement from the other members of the body of Christ. And so, Father, we thank you for your sovereignty over all of life. I pray that you'd use the storms and the trials that that buffet us from time to time to strengthen our faith so that you could use us to help others, Lord, particularly unbelievers who, who are going through storms in their life, Lord, that we would help them, we would just point them to Christ, that he's the answer, he's the only way that they can find, have hope and, and peace and rest for their soul. And so, Lord, make us uh, sensitive to the loss this week, to the hurt, hurting, you know, sometimes we just focus on, Lord, too much on what we're going through. And Lord, I pray you'd help us get our eyes off ourselves and onto what other people are going through and open up some amazing opportunities to, to serve others and to witness to others this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.